Welcome to The Lit Review, a podcast sparked by a moment of urgency, recognizing mass political education as key for our liberation struggles. Every week, your hosts, Paige May and Monica Trinidad, will chat with people we love and respect about relevant books for the movement. Everything from history to theories around gender to sci-fi and beyond. We know that political study is not accessible for a variety of reasons. The high cost of books, academic jargon, the failures of our underfunded school systems, time barriers, etc. Our hope is that this podcast helps address some of those issues, making critical knowledge more accessible to the masses. Think SparkNotes in podcast form. I'm one of your hosts, Paige May. Thanks for listening. All right. Hey, hey, we're here with episode 29. Um, Today we are interviewing a good friend of ours. Um, Her name is Ariana Salgado. Um, Oh, wait, I forgot to say, hey, what's up? How are you? Hi, Monica. Hi, everybody. I'm great. Yay. I'm good. I'm good. Um, Yeah, we're going to talk to Ariana Salgado about the book From Deportation to Prison, The Politics of Immigration Enforcement in Post-Civil Rights America. Really long title. Looks like a really good (laughs) book. We are really excited to hear more about what's inside of it. Um, But Ariana is incredible. Ariana is an amazing activist. Uh, She and I have thrown down for a few years now, I think. Yeah. Um, And is an organizer with Organized Communities Against Deportations, um, also is a paralegal with the West Suburban Action Project, uh, PASO, um, and is just an all-around badass. Um, (laughs) And so I'm really, really excited that you're here today. Thank you for being with us. Yeah, no, thank you for inviting me, and I'm also really excited um, to be here and discussing this book. Awesome. So something we ask at the beginning of every podcast episode is who you are, what do you do and why? And I already, you know, gave you a little shout out, but I want you to <laughs> give us a little bit more about who you are and, and, and what do you do in your everyday life and why you do it. Um, okay, so my name is Ariana, as it was mentioned before, and um, I'm currently an organizer with Organized Communities Against Deportations and also a paralegal at the West Suburban um, Action Project. And um, both of those things are things that revolve around or revolve a lot around um, immigration and addressing like detention and deportation of the undocumented community. And the reason why I'm involved in that is because I was undocumented um, up until this year, actually. Um, and my siblings and, you know, my parents and a lot of people that I love are still undocumented. And so it was something that, you know, uh, directly impacted me um, and, you know, still impacts me um, via my parents and, and once again, the people that I, I love. And it just made sense for me to, to get involved. Um, when I started getting involved, though, it wasn't around uh, fighting deportation and detention. Um, I was still in high school. And at the time... Um, uh, I was looking for a way to be able to go to college because, you know, a lot of the counselors or actually all of the counselors that I spoke to were like, you're not going to be able to go. You don't have a social like you. You just stop even thinking about it. Cause it's not. <laughs> and so at, in a selfish way of figuring out how do I get to college is how I got introduced to um 
uh, like youth undocu- to the undocumented youth-led movement here in Chicago, um, first in the suburbs through the West Suburban Action Project where I work now, um, through a youth-led group called Nuestra Voz or Our Voice. Um, and then eventually I ended up getting connected to the folks um, in the Immigrant Youth Justice League here in Chicago. And um, yeah, the rest is history then. <laughs> it just became OCAD and, you know, and now our focus is really working with um, with folks who find themselves in the deportation system in one way or the other. And what led you to read this book and how how has it influenced you? Um, of Actually, Gabby, a good friend of mine, <laughs> recommended. What's uh, up, Gabby? Yay, Gabby. <laughs> I know, she'll be listening. <laughs> Shout out. Um, so actually, she recommended the, the book and uh, it just... It made a lot of sense for me to read when she talked about, you know, what it was about. And, you know, so it deals a lot with, like, uh, the connections between the immigration system and and the criminal system. And um, because of the work that I have been doing with OCAD and in collaboration with other groups um, here in Chicago um, and the legal work that I do, it just made a lot of sense for me to gather, like, a better understanding of, like, kind of the historical context of the laws that we're now fighting or the policies that we're now fighting and where they come from and, you know, how are they connected to the way folks are um, stopped by the police and processed and, you know, convicted. And so that's kind of what led me to um, to read it, to get a better understanding of, you know, um, where we're at or how we got to where we're at now. Now, earlier before we started recording, we were like, okay, from deportation to prison, how does this book get broken down? Because it's such a huge topic and it's a huge timeline, right? So, yeah, if you could just tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so it it is a it is chapter um, based and the way that um, Patricia Macias Rojas, who is the um, the writer, um, kind of works through it is that she starts with giving a kind of a a link or presenting the link between um, the criminal system and more specifically mass incarceration to the current kind of criminal uh, immigration system, I'm sorry, that we're seeing, right? And so that's a really significant place to start um, because she does mention how like, you know, policing and the way that we're seeing policing with immigration now is something that um, the black community has been seeing, right, for years and years and years, basically since the beginning of uh, of policing. And in the first chapter, she actually makes a lot of um, connections between uh, mass incarceration and programs like the criminal alien program. Um, she makes connections between mass incarceration and um, the criminal alien program. And, um, you know, she states how um, the criminal alien program was something that was further developed in the 80s um, once, you know, mass incarceration due to, like, the war on drugs and then, like, post-civil rights, um, you know, criminalization of, uh, of folks involved in, in those movements and black power movements, right, um, really increased in high numbers, like, uh, you know, the, no, 
really increase the number of people in in prison and high numbers. And so as a result of that, right, this program was further developed to get people to continue to make more space for people in these uh, prisons, right, mm -hmm. and institutions. And so um, the CAP program, basically, uh, what it did or the target of that was to remove non-citizens or undocumented folks from prisons, right, um, to continue to make more space for, you know, mass incarceration and it's, uh, like, and the way that it expanded. And with the folks who were non-citizens, it kind of, the goal was to deport them, mm -hmm. you know, straight from prison, straight from jails. Mm -hmm. And so like you see that connection very obviously there. Mm. Um, and so I think that it's a good um, place to start. And then she goes on to mention um, the change in 1996 with immigration laws, right? Um, with something called the Ill the Illegal Immigration Reform and Immigrant Respon Responsibility Act <laughs> that was signed in 1996. And with that, right, it went kind of hand in hand with CAP. Not only was the goal to deport um, people um, who uh, were, uh, you know, convicted of, of something, you know, a criminal offense or were imprisoned, but it also kind of um, made sure that not only folks, it made sure that folks went through like the criminal system, mm -hmm. right? And it also made sure that it made it really difficult for folks to be able to gain like uh, legal status in the future through mm -hmm. a lot of the changes, right? Because it further connected like the criminal system and the immigration system in that, you know, now a criminal offense um, could bar you from getting residency and then citizenship, you know, later on. Mm -hmm. And then that same criminal offense makes you a high priority for, you know, deportation or detention, right? Mm -hmm. And also criminal offenses now dictate whether you're subject to like mandatory detention or whether you're just you know deported or like what it what that looks like and mm -hmm. so I think that she does a really good job and I hope I did a good job explaining <laughs> the connection between mass incarceration mm -hmm. and then the development of you know cap and then uh, uh, IRA, IRA, as it's um, often called in that change in 1996 mm -hmm. and so now where did ICE have a role in all of this, right? So there's the CAP program and then there's the other one. There's all these different programs, right? And like, where does ICE c come into this uh, scenario? Um, so ICE actually doesn't come into this scenario until 2003. Um, and so in 2003, um, there was a development of uh, Department of Homeland Security, right? And within, with that development came, uh, you know, the development of ICE or Immigration and Customs Enforcement. Mm -hmm. Along with them came um, the um, Customs and Border Protection and then um, USCIS, which is the U U.S. Citizenship and immigration services. And so, so yeah, so ICE, once again, um, although it's a fairly new, you know, thing from like 2003, um, the functions of ICE, I think, have been, um, had have been established prior to that, right? With like um, the CAP program and the change in 1996. Um, so, you know, it's kind of been a buildup and then ICE now, the way that it operates, you know, relies a lot on the way, the change of, uh, of those laws, right? Like who's a priority for deportation, who's a priority for detention is based on those things that happen, you know, prior to ICE being developed. 
I still can't believe Ice is 2003. Right? Yeah, that's, <laughs> that blows my mind. Um, it feels so uh, core to everything and just like it's all, it must have always been here. It's just this non-negotiable entity and to realize it's that new and young is, mm-hmm. uh, I think, important. So thank you. Now, that, that history is really interesting to me. I'm wondering if you can talk through as well the sort of the current politics around immigration. I re- I'm trying to remember some of the chapter titles. I can only remember parts of them, but I remember there's one about like protectors and prosecutors and one about something about biomedics. Mm-hmm. Um, so can you tell us a little bit more about how currently decisions are made and policies are made around immigration? Um, yeah, and so one of the things that, um, you know, has been around, um, and this is important to how things are functioning now, right, is something called prosecutorial discretion. And so that's something, basically, the officers, right, um, have a lot of discretion as to, um, you know, who gets um, uh, deported and, and all of those things, right? And the last chapter in the book, and this book came out in 2016, and so the the last chapter of the book um, kind of poses some questions around how uh, Priority Enforcement Program, which is PEP, right? Um, wait, let me see. Yeah, so in the, in the last uh, chapter of the book, um, uh, Patricia uh, goes into talking about or posing questions about, um, you know, priority enforcement program that came out in 2015 under the Obama administration. Um, And it's very interesting because reading that and like, you know, thinking of those questions, she says, you know, how will uh, prosecutorial discretion impact, um, you know, this? Because with that came like three different sets of priorities, right? Under which people were to be either detained or deported. So either you were involved in gangs or suspected of terrorism or you had um, felonies or more than three misdemeanors or you were a recent arrival to the U.S. And so, you know, it's very int- it was very interesting reading and thinking how all of that has now gone out the window, right? And how um, prosecutorial discretion is a very a challenging thing to to get exercise in a positive way or to to have a positive impact on on cases and you know with that I'll mention the case of um, Genoveva Ramirez who um, we've been working with Genoveva for many many years now she's been fighting her deportation um, since like 2013 um, and she very recently got her stay of removal which calls on prosecutorial discretion of the officer you know and the and the local um, ICE office to use uh, prosecutorial discretion to stop her deportation and it was you know this year um, her stay of removal was denied and one of the things that they cited was a traffic violation that you know she had in 2013 when she was arrested by by the police and you know it's it, it's a what gets submitted to immigration is um you know documentation that proves that um you know she should stay here like um family members who are US citizens that you know that's the one and only thing on her record and things like that and you know we're hoping that they'll use um, their discretion to let her stay. But what we're seeing now is that they're just kind of doing as they wish. And obviously, um, you know, 
um, encouraged uh, by the precedent that we have now and how much um, you know hate around immigrants and other populations, but very specifically you know towards immigrants. Um, you know that the ICE office feels very empowered to kind of do as they mm -hmm. as they please, and so um, you know although things are are the same. Um, you know, the priorities that were um, developed uh, when, uh, you know, Obama was president are no longer applying now. Mm -hmm. And so this is, a, this is a very good time to kind of think of new ways as organizers, right, um, to fight back and figure out how do we make it so um, we are taken seriously, right, and that, like, if you do something that's out of order or out of line, like, how do we respond to make sure that we're still empowered and that we're still fighting and that people still feel like there's a reason to fight, right? Mm -hmm. And that it's not just kind of like, oh, immigration does whatever they want now. Mm -hmm. Like, this is it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, this really, this word discretion really reminds me of the current state of Chicago, right? Where we think or we hear our mayor uh, talking about how we're a sanctuary city, right? And then when in reality, we know that. Um, police and ICE do collaborate, right? Under these specific, like, sort of what you were saying right now with, like, if they have a felony or if they, um, maybe you could talk more about it because I, I'm not too familiar, um, but I know about the, the gang database, right? And mm -hmm. that also is a way that, um, that people get uh, detained and deported, right? Um, and so can you talk a little bit more about this this myth right that police and ICE don't collaborate right that we're a sanctuary city um and and what how it actually looks like in Chicago um yeah so I mean as you said it's a complete myth right um because the the way and that um this book kind of talks about immigration is that you can't in this very moment, you can't talk about immigration or the immigration system with, without talking about the criminal system, right? And the reality is that a lot of folks um, end up in detention and in deportation um, because of the criminal system, right? And so we see this um, with immigration agents being, um, you know, at, at courtrooms, um, in probation office, offices, um, either in courtrooms, you know, waiting for folks to get out, um, and in probation offices where the probation officers collaborate with them, give them information as to where they live, right, and then these folks get home raided. Um, and, you know, this is something that's happening and that we all know that it's happening and the way that um you know the the city and a lot of folks think about this is well you know they're they're criminals like we're only in the interest of you know providing protections for folks who um you, you know are are good immigrants the deserving immigrants the work the hard workers you know almost kind of following that um narrative that obama um really try to push the felons, not families, right? Um, and and that that's just a terrible statement, um, in my opinion, because it's saying, like, you know, if you're a felon, like, do you not have a family? If you're a felon, do you not deserve to be with the people that you love? Or, you know, does if you're a felon, does that mean that you just are kind of, all right, well, you know, you did what you did, and goodbye now. <laughs> like, And so we really need to change that, um, 
here in Chicago and the way that that it's working, right? Um, because we believe that everyone should be able um, to stay in the country with the folks that they love, right? Um, and because this has been um, home for immigrants, you know, for many, many years, and often returning to their home countries, you know, um, means really terrible, dangerous things, you know, either folks can't return for whatever reason, or um, folks that return get targeted, um, and just the reality that folks that return have a really difficult time, um, you know, uh, kind of in incorporating themselves back to a society or back to a country where they haven't been in for years. And the thing about the, um, the gang database, right, is that um, you don't have to have faced like charges or you don't have to be kind of like a self-proclaimed um, gang member. Um, it's just kind of officers saying, well, you know, you were wearing X, Y, Z, you were hanging out in this corner, you were hanging out with these folks, therefore you are a gang member. And, um, you know, like I said, it doesn't mean that you had faced charges before related to that or anything like that. Nobody notifies you that you're in this database. And the problem with that and what we've seen with a couple cases of young people, right, especially young um, uh, young men, is that you end up in deportation proceedings, you end up um, in contact with immigration, and all of a sudden you're told that you're a priority because you're in this gang database when you had no idea that you were in this um, database to begin with. And the thing about that is that it's really difficult, my understanding, to get out of it because one, you don't know you're in it, right? And once you're um, in it and once you're in um, deportation proceedings, like those, you know, going back to the priorities under the Obama administration, that was priority number one, right? Like gang members, get them get them out of the country. Um, you know, that was, that was a priority for folks. And so when folks say that, you know, oh, well, it's just criminals who they're detaining, it's just criminals, you know, first of all, that someone, you know, committed a criminal offense doesn't mean that all of a sudden their humanity no longer exists and that whatever comes at them, you know, whatever horrible thing comes at them, they deserve, that, that's just wrong. But then also, you know, that um, who's a criminal uh, and how that's defined has constantly changed under immigration, um, especially now, right, um, with this current presidency. Now, before we started recording, you actually were talking a little bit about uh, how I think some of what you're speaking through from this book might impact the overall strategy of the movement. And I remember you saying something about the difference between a movement shaped around criminalization versus legalization. So I'm wondering if you can, I think you're, you've been talking about that a lot, but can you sort of directly talk, what does that mean and what, what, what would be the implications of that? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so when I, I guess I'll, I'll talk a little bit about when I started getting involved, right? Um, it was in an effort to figure out ways to go to school. And then eventually in 2009, 2010, um, when I started getting even more involved, the fight for the DREAM Act, um, and the DREAM Act stands for, oh man, what is it? <laughs> <laughs> The Dream Act. Um, the Dream Act really was something that was geared towards um, providing some sort of pathway um, to undocumented folks who who were young mm -hmm. folks, right? Mm -hmm. And so, 
I remember the conversations then were very much about, you know, gaining status. And I feel like for a while now, they have always been, you know, because before that, and, and still you hear the talks of um, immigration reform, right? <laughs> As this thing that everyone's kind of waiting to happen, but, you know, we don't know what it would look like or, you know, but the emphasis is always on legalization of like getting folks papers, right? And, and, um, and how we've been kind of uh, conditioned to think, I guess, that once you have papers, your all your problems are solved, right? Like you're now a resident or you're a citizen and you, all is, you know, fine with the world. Um, and I think that um, through the work that OCAD has been doing, we've been really pushing um, the boundaries of what as a movement we can call out and what we can ask for, right? Um, because we realize that um, through, you know, all that Dream Act campaign and post-Dream Act campaign, that um, having legal status in the country doesn't, isn't a fix-all for everything, right? You still have issues of, you know, um, like healthcare. You still have issues of, you know, you're, a lot of folks who are undocumented are, you know, with or without status, will still be black, will still be brown, right? And will still be targeted for criminalization. Um, and so it, I, you know, the, the call to kind of center um, this issue of criminalization um, really kind of asks us to think broadly about how the immigration system is connected to the overall, like, you know, criminal system in the U.S. Um, that that impacts, you know, a lot of us with, like, um, minimum sentencing, like, making sure that people are locked up, right, and with immigration, making sure that folks are detained for profit as well, right, and then also, also deported, and so it's really pushing us to kind of think beyond just, like, gaining documents and what that means, right, and it, it's been really difficult because folks have been in the U.S. for so long without documents, right, like, working under the table, um, that, you know, when we got Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, or DACA, um, when people got the work permit, people got really, really comfortable. Mm -hmm. Like, okay, I have a work permit, yeah. and maybe I can even the travel. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> this is over. it. <laughs> Let's all go home. Yep. And so the, the danger in that, right, and what we're seeing now is that um, this whole fight around, like, defend DACA, defend, you know, and it's really difficult for me to talk about now because now I'm a legal permanent resident. And so, you know, um, and my brother still has DACA and a lot of other people still have DACA, right? Uh, but the way that I think it's like, this is kind of the moment where we can be asking and requesting more than just a work permit, right? Because DACA, that's really all it is. Because we realized really early on DACA and, and its implementation that it didn't really fully protect you from uh, deportation, as it said, right? Because like I said, a lot of folks, uh, even with DACA, are still black, are still brown, and so are still targeted, um, you know, for 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 police, like, you know, inter interaction where, you know, folks will get stopped with, you know, I don't know, for a DUI or, um, you know, possession of drugs and things like that. And you find yourself, you know, stripped away from, from that. And so it, it really calls us to go beyond just, you know, a piece of paper that will let us work, a piece of paper that will let us be in the country um, legally, right? Although, you know, everybody wants that and that's okay. Mm -hmm. And and how do we do both, right? Like make sure that folks um, 
uh, you know, get away to get documents if that's what they, you know, if that's what we want and that's what we need. Um, and also how do we address um, and begin to address or kind of even um, make so that we break into that connection between the criminal system and the immigration system. Because w when, when we have papers, like I said, or work permits, we still have to face this other system, right? Mm -hmm. That makes mm -hmm. us vulnerable. Right. Um, right. So I'm looking at this sticker on my uh, laptop right now, and <laughs> Paige has this huge grin, um, and it's a it's a sticker of actually Paige and um, your mother, yeah. <laughs> Ariana, um, and it says uh, dismantle ICE, defund the police, and it's a it's a sticker um, by um, this movement artist named uh, Romy Torico, um, and it's you two on top of ladders. Uh, well, not you, you're, you yeah. Paige and your mom yeah. on top of ladders um, with. With chains around and it was during an action that happened oh man I don't even, definitely over a year ago was it last year last winter yeah was it last winter I don't know. I it was it a, about a year ago. Either February of 2016 or January. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So mm -hmm. not anytime recently. Yeah. Um, and it was an action outside of the ICE uh, building over on uh, Congress. Um, and it was such a beautiful action, right? Because you, you, it was really um, uh, showing that the, the, the struggles are very different between black and brown communities, but are still influenced uh, and still oppressed by the same institutions and structures, right? And I think, and I'm thinking back to earlier this year when, when we started talking more about sanctuary cities and expanding sanctuary, right? And I was hearing from a lot of black organizers that um, folks were really nervous and really worried that the conversation around Black Lives Matter was going to disappear. And in a lot of ways it has. Um, but I, I was really, I'm really moved by the ways that uh, groups like Mi Gente and BYP 100 and OCAD um, are, are, and Undocu Black and Bahi are really just holding the fact that there are black people that are being de deported. There mm -hmm. are black people that are immigrants that are facing these same issues right now. Right. Um, and so yeah, and so I really, I wanted to name that, and then I also wanted to ask if this book, because I want to return back to the book, mm -hmm. if this book does talk about um, the, uh, how black people experience deportation um, mm -hmm. uh, to prison, especially. Um, the focus of the book is on um, the Arizona and Sonora border, and so a lot of the focus um, is on Mexican um, immigrants, right, or undocumented um, immigrants, and the way that these, you know, policies have impacted their lives, right? Um, although you can very, you know, these policies are throughout. So although the focus is um, in that border, um, in the in those border cities, right? Um, you can see the impact throughout the U.S. Um, and, and I say that because, you know, it's something that isn't, like, um, covered, like, at length. Um, and so, so yeah, the, the, the answer is, is no, right? Um, and, but one of the things that, um, that she does um, do and kind of call some folks is to really kind of um, analyze the, the history of, like, policing, right, and, and the criminality um, and the way that um, the black community has been experiencing that um, for many, 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 many years. Um, and she does that through the connections of... Um, making the connections through mass incarceration and, and the CAP program. Um, and she also kind of does that um, in, the, in the last chapter um, when she talks about the difference between, um, you know, the status of a, a legal 
right? And the status of, of, of a criminal, right? Where she kind of talks about how, what, what I was talking about previously, that um, your status as someone that's illegal, right? As a lot of folks call it, and the way that um, the immigration, that immigration addresses it, right? Is something that can change, right? Because you can either um, get married or a family member can petition for you. And, you know, if that's the only status that you have, then, you know, that changes and, and you're kind of depending on how how fast or how you assimilate to the culture right then you're kind of in a way like good to go and we see that all the time right with with immigrants but what she talks about is that like the status of criminal that a lot of folks um, that are undocumented have encountered themselves their, themselves in or having that status right that doesn't um that doesn't change as easily and that follows you throughout right and she kind of talks about how what that looks like um for the black community right if you go to um if you go to prison on like possession charges or like and then you end up being convicted of a felony right like what does that look like that follows you even after punishment as as she mentions right um with not being able to access um public benefits or you know uh schooling uh access to schooling becomes difficult access to housing and things like that and so she draws on those connections right the same with undocumented folks who um you know through these changes in policies, we've seen that, you know, um, entry is, can become a, a charge, right? And then re-entry can become a federal charge where you can end up in prison and um, those come with mandatory minimums, right? And so if you were once just like on the status of illegal, um, but because of these changes, now you find yourself on the status of, you know, also a criminal. It's way harder for you to move away from your status as, as you know, as being um, someone with, you know, who's undocumented. Because it makes it very difficult for you to be able to get status. Um, you know, now you're in prison, then you get deported. If you come back, you know, that's another charge. And so, so yeah, so... I, I think that she does a really good job at, um, you know, uh, making those connections. Um, and at the same time, I think that there's still a lot more to be said about the um, undocumented black experience, mm -hmm. right? Um, yeah. So basically, she's saying that our society is anti-black. Yes. <laughs> In a nutshell. <laughs> it is. Just to say. Um, so I, actually, I think about that action more than any other that I've ever done, and I'm still processing what it meant. I think it was, for me, um, one of the starker lessons in, in who these systems are built for and who they're designed to contain, but also the webs and trappings that have been laid out to, uh, to like pull people yeah, through that as well. And so what I'm speaking to is, so, so at this action, my brother and I were if I remember correctly, the only two black people who were arrested for mm -hmm. this. And um, I had a pretty high profile role. You know, I was up on the ladder. Uh, and it's interesting. I've since seen all of my arrest records. And in that one, I'm read as non-black Hispanic. Um, and my brother, who's lighter than me but has dreadlocks, um, is, is listed as a dark black man. 
and a dark-skinned black man. And so, it, you know, in that action, I remember we, you, when you get arrested, you get put into the, the bullpen first, right? And you're waiting to be processed. And uh, once you've been processed, then you kind of go into the cell and they think that's when they finger you and all that stuff. So the, the being initially processed, though, takes at a minimum of an hour. Um, and so as someone who's gets a, who's, was arrested for an action, you could expect that that would take a couple of hours to be processed and you'd be out hopefully within four or five hours. And, and that's exactly what we saw. And mm -hmm. so, but where they split you up, um, they gender you. And so the men were put in a different bullpen. And I think there were three guys that got arrested, three people who were, um, were put in that, that bullpen. And my brother was the only black person. And so I get released um, and I'm walking out and I see that, you know, this is five hours later or something. And I see my brother is still in the bullpen and uh, actually erase, uh, rewind. Okay. So rewind for a second. While we're waiting in the bullpen, I'll never forget. The police were so nice. Like they were so like, there were, this was the most majority white people that had ever been arrested with. And they came and they gave the white people back their money to hold on to while they were in jail. I've never seen that before. They were like, oh, we thought you might want to hold on to this. They offered us candy and soda. Like, I was just like, you've got to be kidding me. They made me throw out. Like, uh, yeah. And so that's all happening. And so, but then, so they, yeah, move forward. Um, they were comparing us to the other bad protesters, right? Referring to Black Lives Matter and how this was so much better. And then <laughs> when we're leaving, I see my brother's still there. And I get, I'm like, what the fuck? Like, that means he's at least five hours. Like, he still has a minimum of an hour, right? Mm -hmm. He hasn't been processed yet. Um, and so we get out and I remember talking to Tanya and she's like, what? And she calls and they're like, yeah, they just, they had just assumed he was just a typical black man who was there for something like mm -hmm. who knows right just like another black guy that they had caught up in the system and so they had just left him and hadn't even begun to try to do anything um so yeah thank you for bringing up that action and i think yeah it's it, it, you know the, the as long as you have mass incarceration and this these this infrastructure of detaining people they will find ways to use that against our communities right um and we have to make sure it's a target of our of our efforts um i was wondering if you if everyone read this book or maybe and maybe you can only speak for yourself what does it change in terms of your understanding of what we need to do i think you've already spoken to this a lot but can you uh, yeah, just, yeah, just sort of all, overall, though, what are the main lessons that you think people can walk away if they take the time to read this? Mm -hmm. um, I think overall, like, really, you know, it calls on us to get a better understanding of the way that policing has worked in the U.S. Um, for you know, f since forever, basically, right? Um, and it calls us to also understand specifically how it has worked um, and has targeted, and the target has always been, um, you know, the black community. And in understanding that, right, um, she says that we can better, or the way that I interpret it is that we can better kind of understand the, the immigration system that we find ourselves in and how do we push for more than just, once again, um, documents or, 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 or legalization. And so I think that in this very moment, it's, it's something very crucial because of the administration that we find ourselves you know, in. Um, and just because a lot of usually the narrative around immigration is protecting the dreamers, right, or or protecting the good immigrants, that all they want to do is come here and work and you know be okay, and and 
it's really kind of calling on us to think um, beyond that and to push ourselves um, beyond just that, right? And, and realizing that, um, like you mentioned, right, so long as, as, the, as the black community is targeted and, and criminalized and, you know, and they, uh, they have to face, like, mass incarceration, so long as that's an issue, like, we're, gonna ha we're going to keep having the system, right? And we, that we really kind of need to do away with all of this, right, in order for us to really, you know, um, to really have, you know, the liberty and freedom to, like, move around and do whatever, right? Um, and so I think that it's really significant in that it's calling us to make those connections. And like I said, especially now, that there's a lot of energy around, like, once again, protecting the good immigrants, right? <laughs> um, how do we gather that energy um, to push the boundaries and continue to push the boundaries, right? And it's work that, like I said, um, OCAD and, and, and Mijente and other groups around the country have already been doing. And how do we use this moment and this energy um, to push beyond that? And then to also continue to make those collaborations, right? Like. Um, here in Chicago, um, OCAD has worked very closely with Asada's Daughters, with the People's Response Team, with BYP 100, and how do we continue um, to make those connections, right? Um, to make sure that these, um, that the connection between these two systems is there, and it's very damaging to, you know, to all of our communities in, in different manners, right? Um, but that we're kind of all facing the, you know, um, the systems, like I said, in different manners, and we're all impacted. Yeah, I've been really impressed with just how, like, on point folks have been in Chicago, especially. You know, we have a really great city. You know, I, I, there's the protection for all um, sort of movement that's happening. There's the, um, I remember there was a rally after the DACA decision, and it was, like, beyond DACA. Mm -hmm. Like, how do we, like, think beyond this, right? Like, how do we help folks right now in the moment that need it, right? But also, how do we think beyond, like, how do we make sure that there is protection for all mm -hmm. people? And how, how do we make sure that there is sanctuary for all people? Um, so, yeah, so I've just, yeah, I've been really impressed with the work that's been done in Chicago. Um, so we're getting close to time. Um, um, so I wanted to uh, thank you again for being on our show. Um, and again, the book we're talking about today is From Deportation to Prison, uh, The Politics of Immigration Enforcement in Post-Civil Rights America by Patricia uh, Macias Rojas. Um, and the book uh, came out in 2016. Um, and we are here with Ariana Salgado, um, an amazing, incredible activist in Chicago. Whoop, whoop. Um, and yeah, so I wanted to, uh, did you have any last questions? Questions page? Are we good? Are we good to close out? I mean, we probably have a thousand more questions, right? We could be talking for like another hour, but um, yeah, yeah, you you just you know what you're talking about. Um, so we're gonna have you close out with maybe your favorite. Uh, well, any last things you want to say first um, that we didn't get to, um, but also close out with one of your favorite passages from this book. Um, yeah, I mean, I think we talked about everything that I really wanted to um, bring out from, from the book. And um, one of the quotes that I um, had picked out actually speaks to, you know, what, what um, Patricia Macias um, Rojas is kind of calling us um, to do. So, um, yeah, it says... For advocates, it no longer seems viable to just push for legalization since enforcement priorities and criminal prosecution for immigration offenses make people ineligible through, cr through criminal branding. 
But what if the mainstream movement put mass criminalization at the center of its analysis and directly challenged criminal enforcement priorities? There is an implicit anti-racist critique in this approach because it directly challenges the anti-black roots of criminal branding. It takes up the plight of those who have been stigmatized as criminal as well as those um, as well as those on their way to becoming criminalized, which until recently the immigrant rights movement has avoided. To another episode of the Lit Review, a podcast where we interview people we love and respect about books for the movement. We are your co-hosts, Monica Trinidad and Paige May, two Chicago-based organizers. Special shout out to the Lit Review's very own sponsor, the Arcus Center for Social Justice Leadership out of Kalamazoo College. Keep your eyes and ears open for another episode next Monday, same time, same place. Want to hear about a specific book? Email us at thelitreviewchicago at gmail.com or find us on Facebook. And if you like this episode, give it a shout out on Twitter or Instagram. Our handle is at litreviewshy. Keep reading! Keep reading.